This is the seventh episode of an occasional podcast series in the afterlife of my documentary about Samuel Barber. These Capricorn conversations are with composers and musicians whose orbits have intersected with that famous gathering place called Capricorn, where Barber and Minotti also lived. I'm Paul Moon, and today's conversation is with composer John Deke at my studio in the East Village. John, it's great to see you again. Yeah, great to be here. Well, I mean, given where we are, I was kind of inspired to ask you about your memories of probably after you've arrived in New York City and you are finding your way as a composer, your style is developing, and it interests me what influences you had besides, let's say, what they teach at conservatories. So there's a downtown performance art scene that crosses boundaries between rock music and visual art and so on. Um, sometimes we we attribute that to Soho. We're here in the East Village. Um, tell me a little bit more about some of these people. And the names I've read are like John Cage, um, Salvatore Martirano, mm. and others. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, coming to New York, first of all, um, back in the, well, geez, early 60s. I mean, this goes back a, a long time. Um, I was coming to New York primarily as an instrumentalist. I was a bassist, uh, or trying to learn how to be a bassist. I had been, uh, uh, at first, as, at a very early age, having piano lessons in rural Indiana, uh, and a piano teacher who encouraged me to uh, uh, take off. Well, she, she loved it when I would change the John Thompson teaching little fingers to play uh, and I would put my own little silly riffs on it. Believe me, I was no virtuoso or genius by a long shot, but she encouraged that. However, when I uh, later went to Chicago and went to high school, I got discouraged from, from uh, composing, who do you think you are, Mozart or something like that, with more of these prestigious teachers. So I decided that I, was, I needed to become an instrumentalist first, before I could go into composing. So I came in uh, 63, it was, to Juilliard, no less. It was uptown then. And I was, uh, as, as an instrumentalist, I always felt that that belonged uptown, as it were, as for, uh, up to 122nd Street and down to Lincoln Center, which was just opening at that time. But downtown, oh, that was much more fertile and a lot of, a lot of grimy, gritty, wonderful stuff was happening down there. So it, it feels like tourism to sort of map out that New York City history mm -hmm. between, I think now they say uptown, midtown, downtown, and then it even farther breaks down into Soho and so on. But I, I just watched this documentary, The Velvet Underground, Todd Haynes's documentary about the band. But it, I, to my surprise, it traced even that sound to um, people like Lamont Young and this minimalist scene that was pretty active in that you know latter part of last century. Um, so you were navigating worlds, weren't you? You were. Um, eventually in the New York Philharmonic as a bassist, um, mm -hmm. playing the contrabass. Right. But then you had another life here. So how did that manifest? And, and you've, you've said that you did performance art and some theatrical integration of, of, of your talents. 
What, what was well, that? Finally, uh, as I was developing, and I had already reached the point where I was, you know, uh, sort of able to call myself a professional as a bassist, uh, that coincided beautifully with my desire, uh, long-standing desire, to be a composer. Uh, and as I say, I was discouraged uh, by the compositional techniques and the teaching at Oberlin and Juilliard, although there were many fine composers there, and I, I felt like I was already a new music specialist. But at the University of Illinois that year, when John Cage was there, Harry Parch was in and out, he was leaving, but I... I fell in love with his music, with John Cage's whole ethos, and Sal Marrano was there, uh, Ben Johnson, uh, Charles Hamm. Oh, my God, there were such composers there. So when I came to New York, which was the very next year, and managed to uh, join the New York Philharmonic, I was already aware that I felt the New York Philharmonic was a little old-fashioned for me and that I was attracted to the burgeoning music and art scene in Soho. And you mentioned Lamont Young, of course. Philip Glass was down there. Laurie Anderson was just starting. Um, so many composers there. And the visual artists, Liechtenstein, all, all those, um, uh, Motherwell, all those... Uh, visual artists were there too and I was just fascinated with both the music and the art scene in in Soho so I would do I would play a rehearsal in the morning with the Philharmonic the afternoon go into Soho and maybe the evening but we had four maybe five concerts a week in Lincoln Center at the Philharmonic and so uh, I was running running back and forth all the time but it was wow looking back it was exciting so were there ever situations where you began to express yourself as a composer and performer in some non-traditional settings like lofts and um, um, theatrical and so on? Absolutely, yeah. As I say, I, I'd begun uh, uh, really throwing myself into composing from the University of Illinois, um, and then I transferred that love and that uh, energy, I guess, to... Uh, to New York in, in, in Soho and um, in, as you say, in lofts because the Soho at that time, remember, was still uh, a lot of warehouses and a lot of huge, empty, uh, raw spaces. And we performed there and I had an instinct right away for theatrical performing um, as a bassist but also as a composer and also as an actor and I even brought in uh, my visual art. As I say, my parents were visual artists, not musicians. And I um, had gotten very heavily into sculpture, uh, more of a geographical, uh, abstract style. Jean Arp, the, the surrealist sculptor, was a great inspiration for me. Also, Giorgio de Chirico, uh, who was a... Um, a painter, a seminal painter who inspired Max Ernst and Dali and Miro and Tanguy and all those guys. Um, so I, I was very much in, uh, uh, into that. And um, being both a maverick at the Philharmonic, you know, remember, in those days, first of all, they were all men, and they actually wore coat and tie to rehearsals. My first rehearsal in 
what was then Philharmonic Hall. I showed up in a green dashiki of African descent, uh, blue jeans and hiking boots. So they marked me as a rebel upstart right away. But, I, you know, I was, I was not a loudmouth. I was a shy person. But, uh, you know, I had my... I couldn't fit in too well. But, as it turned out, I have to give credit to the Philharmonic because it didn't fire me. As long as I played my part well and, and all that and, and, and did the work, which was not easy. I mean, you know, you can have all these irascible, demanding conductors of, the, of that age, um, starting with Bernstein. Um, uh, that was, that was quite, uh, quite a, a load to carry, but... I had so much energy left to go downtown and do the performance art scene. And it, this all paints an interesting picture that might help explain, or at least the detective work of how we end up with your body of work that is performed now worldwide, but in particular by certain chamber music ensembles, how I know you through the 21st century consort mm. who's committed to perform many of your works. But mm -hmm. there's something that audiences look forward to when it's a John Deke work that it's a little bit maverick in that sense where, for example, there is a theatrical quality to your compositions that are, I don't, is it narrative? Is it acting? What you do do is you make the musicians, or I should say you call upon the musicians mm. to act, if you will, to play a part by saying things, speaking things, um, becoming characters. So these, this is the background that, 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 that sets yeah. that up. Where did that start? Is there a particular piece that you composed where you really started tiptoeing into that realm? I, I think uh, from the very first, well, I was also inspired by George Crumb, for instance, from the, uh, when I was at the University of Illinois. I mean, he came there once or twice. Um, using the poetic evocation of sounds, and I was impressed with the the musicality of speech. I had just come from a year in Italy and really got into learning the language there and how it affected my brain <laughs> uh, very much um, and, and the rhythm of that speech and how it... Uh, wait, are we going to... Oh. And, and how it uh, affects music. Why the music of Rossini da, 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 sounds different than the music of Claude Debussy. The, how we speak is how we write music willy-nilly. I mean, Aaron Copland doesn't sound like, uh, like Mazorsky because they spoke different languages. Um, and furthermore, I felt that as I'm speaking, I'm not speaking in a monotone. Obviously, it's a music. Everybody knows that. Also, musical instruments uh, inflect musical speech, not just compositions, but the actual sound of an instrument. A violin glistening downward can sound like a... But it can sound... You have so many shades of emotion and, and expression that I started to... Um, develop a language which I called off of the word speak playing um, Arnold Schoenberg it was a little bit of a ha 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 stealing from the old guy because um, he, he uh, initiated Sprechstimme which is speak 
singing. I s called it speak playing, Sprechspiel, or Sprechspiel, uh, however, you know, the proper German is. Um, and I would have whole conversations of instruments. And what it would sound like was inevitably comic. Okay, to me, uh, to compose a piece of music, A, it has to go from here to there. And if it was minimal, like uh, was, was the rage at the time, and I was very influenced, it can be from here to there in a straight line. Or it can be from here to there as a form, like a sonata form, where you use different themes and they come back, or theme and variations. Or it can be a storyline. And so I would have a story. I, I started out as a kind of a absolute music composer, but I veered into telling a story. And I loved that. And I could actually have the instruments tell the story, and then later the musicians to speak verbally and in the case of a flute for instance you can sort of blend your verbal speech into playing the instrument at the same time i never knew that that would be possible until i saw a, a flutist do that robert dick and uh, thomas howell and a few other flutists and i said wow you're imitating human speech jimi hendrix also did that with his guitar so these kind of things affected me as a composer and as an instrumentalist in fact i read something that uh, if we can take a moment to just completely geek out on one of my other favorite composers besides you is uh i i saw in an interview you mentioned that an early childhood i mean really early childhood formative experience was going to chicago symphony and hearing janacek's symphonietta mm. and janacek is an example of a composer who was a bit maverick but also incorporated uh, folk music, folk tales, and so on. Mm -hmm. But what I think of with Janáček is his operas and the way that he did seem to make an effort to write melodic lines that were intimately related to the way things sound when they're spoken. So already mm -hmm. a composer who is you know, seeing the, the trying to track, or actually mm -hmm. trying to remove the distinction between speaking and playing music oh wonderful so tell that. me tell me about that experience if you will and 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 how Janáček might have ignited that granted Sinfonietta is an instrumental piece but um, maybe mm -hmm. he, there's even traces of that in Sinfonietta yeah no he he he, he did he was a, a master if one can use that word uh, of of speech in music and the music in speech so I I really loved the the idea of of flowering the speech into music and and uh, pressing the music in back into speech uh, it, it, it was it, it was something that really uh, attracted me there's an innocent quality to just simply saying what is the difference between saying something and playing something with an instrument and mm -hmm. why do we have these boundaries what's the big difference and that inevitably you know why do people even speak why do they say anything and sometimes what we're naturally mm -hmm. inclined to do is just to tell stories mm -hmm. and to hook onto stories what we even might even have a reason to say anything at all is just to tell a story so mm. in your works um, they have been modeled after if you will archetypal or um, canonical stories you've got Jack and the Beanstalk the Ugly Duckling the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow 
mm-hmm. on the cusp of Halloween as we are right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, other the so-called great composers would just put a number on a piece and, and mm-hmm. put it into sonata form. Mm-hmm. So, um, but but at the same time, I've heard you push back against the idea of being a composer of children's music, um, mm-hmm. even though these are stories that have been, you know, beloved by children. So mm-hmm. what is that distinction all about? Well, um, I, as, as you say, I never wrote a piece for children. Uh, on the other hand, I never really wrote a piece for adults either. Uh, I didn't, which one can say by extension, the, the academics, the, or as one composer told me, mainstream. I want to be a mainstream composer. Well, what is that? Okay, I, you know, I, I could rebel against anything. But the point is that I wanted music to communicate, just as I'm communicating to you now, if, if I speak in a different language, you probably wouldn't understand me, no matter how well I would be speaking, and you might note my emotions, my inflections, my rhythm, my intonation, but you wouldn't understand the words. I don't think music expresses itself only in words. I mean, that that's also a truism. Music speaks beyond words, so you don't have to speak Russian in order to in order to hear uh, anyone, you know, Stravinsky, Mussorgsky, uh, any of the Glinka, uh, any any of those composers. They, they either speaks to you or it doesn't. Uh, however, I think symphonic music, if I may go into that area, um, which has been such a a profound achievement of humanity. Uh, has somewhat gotten, mm, it's at a crossroads, sort of. Uh, the pop music uh, and, and all the, I don't want to just say pop music, but all, so many forms of contemporary music bypass the symphony orchestra. And I think that's a shame because uh, I think the symphony orchestra, with all its uh, incredible history and personality that has gone into each of those instruments. I mean, how old is the flute? How old is the violin? And where did it uh, start and and express itself from from Appalachia to India to to Scandinavia? Uh, you know, the violin has uh, goes back probably beyond the Neolithic. I think that's of profound importance. All of those instruments uh, speak to us of deep parts of ourselves that that w- that would be a great loss for us to ignore. You can amplify them, you can alter them electronically and so forth and, and have just completely uh, electronic music too. I'm not against any of that. But you do need to maintain also that that core, that core of humanity, that, that, you know, just like, I'm just feeling my heart right now. I mean, yeah, it's mine. It's been with me all my life. But where did I inherit that heart from? I mean, it's not a mechanical thing that somebody invented. It dates back, well, something like that dates back a billion years, probably, to some protozoan. But the symphony orchestra has this depth to it. Where is the new music going to come from? Is it going to bypass the symphony orchestra? I think that would be a 
Well, <sighs> shame, whatever. I believe in its power and its lasting significance, okay? I just believe that. And I think, you mentioned children, adults, da-da-da-da. I think that we've been ignoring the child. And not that I want to speak only to the child and say, yeah, Mary had a little lamb. You like that little tune? I want to hear from the child because they carry this ancient uh, part of themselves. They inherited their all their flesh, their organs, their brain, their soul, as it were, from thousands, millions of years before. I want to hear because they're closer to that origin than I am. I've, you know, that old saw that everyone from Picasso to I don't know has said, you know, all children are born artists. The problem is remaining one because we forget about it. Why is that? Because the child is a little closer to the creation, okay? Mm -hmm. And I want to hear that creation. I think it's very profound. So that's, uh, that's why I listen to children now. That's so interesting. I mean, the, it reminds me of the thing that I guess as you get older, you want to recover the, the amplified sensations that you had as a child. Mm. And if there's no, there's never more a ripe time or child sociologists and psychologists, you know, specifically diagnose that, that you are most affected. You're most mm absorbing of your environment when you're young. Mm -hmm. It's no coincidence that parents who want to treat their kids to amazing experiences don't present them with just little, delicate, intimate things. Mm -hmm. They want to show them big things that make kids go, wow, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And a symphony orchestra just, it's, it's not too much at once. I don't mm -hmm. think that children, you know, cower under the, the gigantic sound of, a hundred instruments or so playing. No. It's actually suitable mm -hmm. for their openness to new experiences and gigantic experiences. Um, you make an interesting case then mm -hmm. for um, something that, if, if you're saying that symphony orchestras are sort of endangered, if you will, mm -hmm. um, what is also true though is that they're very institutional because how do you pull off organizing that many people and paying their salaries and also, the barriers to entry for composers are pretty high. There's mm -hmm. only so many symphony orchestras available to any given composer. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, one more comment I have to make is that mm -hmm. I went to the New York Philharmonic uh, last weekend, and mm -hmm. it was the first time after moving here that I really was actually able to hear them, for heaven's sake. It's been so long mm -hmm. that they've been um, dark. Mm -hmm. But I guess I left with more than anything else a sense that the stakes especially for that institution, are very high. Mm. People pay attention to that orchestra because it has such an incredibly legendary history. It's one of the best mm -hmm. in the world, mm -hmm. and the stakes are high. Mm. The stakes are high. Very true, yes. And thank you for saying that about, about the orchestra, that it really does have um, something which is, which is profound beyond its, you know, the institution of it. And yes... I have to use that horrible word, infrastructure. Well, actually, not a horrible word. It's a necessary thing. Um, it's not like 
just giving a kid a blank wall and a paintbrush and a pot of colors. Uh, the child can go, and in fact, they do. Kids as young as four or five express profound emotions with their paintings, and that's what inspired me, by the way, uh, to do Why can't kids do this with music? Well, people say right away, a kid can't notate. They don't even know what treble clef is. How could they... Uh, transpose for the clarinet how could they uh, put together all these instrumental things well the infrastructure well that is an adult thing and we can handle that what we don't handle is the actual creation of the music itself the composer brings the score uh, copyists copy out the parts and so on why can't we do that for children Mm -hmm. so uh I was doubtful myself uh, at first at the at the at what kind of magnitude could the, what kind of magnitude could it be for for a child of nine, ten, eleven years old, uh, old enough to you know read and write and follow a, a, a sequential task, but what kind of music would they actually produce? Mm-hmm. And therein lies a long story that I've had the great gift and pleasure uh, of ex- of observing and expressing and taking part in. Well, I guess we should talk about very young composers then. I mean, I'd still want to get to you and your work uh, apart from that, for sure, and including, <laughs> of course, The Passion of Scrooge, which okay, uh, where there's already plenty of... <laughs> but wow. no, let's talk about that, because I, um, you are the, the founder of mm-hmm. Very Young Composers, mm-hmm. and... Let's just, if you may, quickly just tell the story that starts actually, I, I read in Brooklyn with Marin Alsop, which ended up at first mm-hmm. in Colorado. But yes, mm-hmm. how did this Well, start? just just briefly, yeah. I, I was was working with Marin, and I, I knew her as a violinist. She was a budding conductor, and we had done some uh, school activities in schools. And this was a school in Brooklyn, very uh, very diverse and, and not, you know, not one of your elite schools by a long shot and and I was looking at the the halls uh, as we walked to a classroom there was paintings on the walls by kids five years old and I said to her wait a minute look at this this is a five-year-old here that looks like a Kandinsky this one with look at those little lines there those stick figures are are made they're obviously Paul Clay saw a child doing that and that one over there looks uh, like Willem de Kooning with the with the with the horribly disfigured eyes and so forth the, uh, why can't children compose as as uh, as profoundly and, and and beguilingly and and um, with such depth as that and then again as I said before it was the infrastructure problem that we, the adults, can handle. The kids can handle the creativity of it. So I, um, I, I wangled myself uh, as with the Meet the Composer program of John Duffy to start in Denver uh, and try, you know, like I explained to the Philharmonic, which, which I remain loyal to all my life. But I said, look, I have to try out this idea and you don't want to open your play right on Broadway. You want to open it in Hartford or Schenectady or something. So I said, I, I want to open this, try this idea out that kids can write for the symphony orchestra uh, in Denver. 
And boy, it took me a lot longer than I expected to hone a, anything like a curriculum whereby kids started to catch fire and do exactly what I was beginning to realize they could do. I wasn't at all convinced of this at first. And, and, and Marin, Alsop, Marin Alsop was seated at the Colorado Symphony. She had just become music director there, yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, she was very supportive of all that, and as were a lot of other people, most notably Christopher Kendall of the 21st Century Consort, as you mentioned, and other places. And uh, uh, so the for about 20 years there, uh, I was primarily in, involved in... Well, I was still an instrumentalist, obviously, and a contemporary music specialist, both of other composers. I love to play the music of other contemporary composers on the bass or in an ensemble, uh, but uh, also as composer of my own works. And I would go around to other, and other orchestras began to do my works as well. Like you say, the Jack and the Beanstalk, uh, um, or the Legend of Spite and Dival, or the Snow Queen of the... You know, orchestras from Atlanta to Minneapolis to San Francisco to Denver to, uh, you know, St. Louis and... and, uh, National Symphony. The National Symphony was one of the, one of my uh, favorite places. Jeez, with, uh, in way, it was way back in the days of of Slava, Rostropovich, oh my goodness. And uh, so anyway, all that uh, was, again, coaxing instrumentalists to to go beyond well they had I, I wrote virtuosic music that that required professionals but I, I in in uh, in addition or beyond that they 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 had to realize that they were on stage as performers because this whole I mean look at this whole cliche of on stage the performers are are wearing black formal they're looking, you look at them, and they have probably been discouraged from showing expression or joy or emotions in the music that they're playing. And conversely, the audience is, is discouraged from moving. Good Lord, what is that about? I mean, you look at any rock concert, I and mean, people are not only moving, they're... They're enjoying themselves, gesticulating, uh, uh, commenting, singing along. And the musicians, do I have to even say how crazy and wonderful the musicians are with their their outlandish uh, costumes and and, uh, clothing and... It's wonderful, it's it's wonderful. And I'm not saying that people should, should, you know, go bare-chested in the symphony orchestra hall, but for heaven's sake, how can you not dance to a Beethoven symphony? I mean, really. I sit there on my hands. I, I have to go into the back of the hall because people get annoyed and I'm using, I'm moving to the music and, oh my God, I did, even I go to Finland and I played, I played, I listened to uh, the, 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 Sibelius or, the Sibelius Fifth Symphony by one of the national symphonies there and played in the original hall. I had to go to the back of the hall because e- even there, you know, I, I, uh, I, I moved too much to the music. People get annoyed or they, they, they think it's distracting. Distracting? How could it be distracting? 
One of the few conductors I've ever seen, I'm going off on a thing here. No, I got it. One of the few conductors I've seen who recognizes this is my old friend and teaching artist, James Blatchley. Now, he has an orchestra, an experiential orchestra, I believe it. He, he did a, a performance down at Paolo Prestini's um, uh, National, National Sawdust, Sawdust right? Uh, where he played the Rite of Spring of Stravinsky and w- encouraged people to dance to it. Oh, my God. That was no problem at all, baby. That, woo, man, that piece makes you want to, woo, dance or just, I, I don't know, just move and, and get that get that gritty stuff, that that uh, passion, that red anger and that, that glorious opening of the second part where you're, where are we? We're in some mysterious realm, and how can you? I mean, I'm moving right now. As I'm, how can you not move with that stuff? So anyway, that marks me as a kind probably of probably easier yeah. to get the audience to do that in Williamsburg than uh, Midtown, right? <laughs> but uh. you know, by the way, similarly, there was an experiment where the New York Philharmonic dabbled in something called and New York Phil, Philharmonic 360. Mm. at the drill hall of the Park Avenue Armory. Mm. And again, it was yes. the, it was an attempt yes. to try and at least reconfigure the relationship mm-hmm. between the audience and the orchestra. But good, good I have point. to say, ultimately, it was pretty much the same thing. Mm. You know, because people still were duty-bound to their chairs, their assigned seats. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't like something else I experienced there years ago and filmed, actually. John Luther Adams had something he mm. sort of wrote, if you will, called a nook suit where mm-hmm. it was truly encouraged. You know, mm-hmm. you would have people lying on the floor mm-hmm. in anywhere they wanted. Mm-hmm. And the relationship between the audience and the and and the players, the mm-hmm. musicians, the composer was completely, you know, uh, yeah. uh, de- democratized. Wow. And I wonder whether Wonderful. that's in the future for orchestral music even, which is a pretty difficult to organize. And the New York Philharmonic 360 degrees mm-hmm. um, right 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 um, you, you definitely you don't want people wandering around and tripping on a one million dollar violin let's say <laughs> yeah yeah how do you reconcile all of that yeah I love John Luther's music and his whole attitude he's a he's erratic we got uh, uh, meet the composer grants at the same time so mm-hmm. we were in a sort of a graduating class of that he went to um, Fairbanks Alaska and I went to Denver and uh, I just love his stuff, and his whole ethos is really just um, very outstanding. But back to children. There's no reason why um, that music could not be incorporated by the Philharmonic. You don't want to play the Beethoven Symphony on your million-dollar violin and then have somebody dancing around on it. You could play a piece of that and then have whatever, have your intermission or the, the next night or something, and then do the other thing. The... Uh, we noted that during the pandemic, even the Philharmonic and certainly all the other or, or arts organizations became much more flexible in terms of their um, uh, reach, the audiences that they were playing for by force. They couldn't stay in their big uh, halls with 3,000 people packed in like sardines like we do. Um, so I, I think that was one of the, maybe the gifts of the pandemic. So getting in ch- inside children's heads, and, and as, mm-hmm. as that goes, I mean, it's funny how at concerts, if there are children you mm-hmm. know, allowed into the symphony hall or mm-hmm. something, they're the ones who always want to get up and try things. They want to mm-hmm. go walk up to the stage. Sometimes mm-hmm. you'll find a stray kid 
you know, as if they've escaped from a prison and they'll make their way onto the stage and no, 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 that's wrong. You know, you can't do that. But um, along those lines, um, you've noted that most children are surrounded with what we call pop music. You Mm -hmm. know, it's a certain type of music Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it comes in many forms. But in general, what you could say is that it's sort of, I don't know if light's the right word, but it's not, doesn't have that gigantic um, gravitas of what we kind of typically call classical music. Yeah. Um, but you've also said that when they are finally empowered to compose, to write something, mm-hmm. that they themselves change the style compared to what they absorb all day long. If it's mm-hmm. them who are going to express themselves, mm-hmm. they adopt a slightly different um, gravitas and tone. What's mm-hmm. going on there? Have you figured that out and have you exploited it? <laughs> well, um, or I should say facilitated it. Facility, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of what we do. And at the first, kids have to be convinced of many things. For one thing, that you're listening to them and taking note, taking seriously what they are coming forth with. I mean, seriously, quote unquote, because they may come forth with something really silly or funny or farcical even uh and that's okay and that uh or angry and and um uh resentful or or confused or whatever all those emotions are okay and it takes the children a while to feel safe and how do you do that by a number of ways um i love to use the term zeitgeist because it uh uh, I don't know, not, not that I'm even a German expert or anything, and it's not a German quality by any means. It's a universal. Um, the, the spirit of the times. In other words, the spirit of the kids around you. If one child makes a breakthrough compositionally, for instance, recently uh, uh, we, we had in the, in, in the composer classes that we called the bridge classes. We have the very young composers in grade school, and then we added... Uh, for the middle school kids who are dealing with a whole different set of emotions and and uh, uh, feelings and attitudes and sophistication level and so forth, not necessarily better than the children who are in grade school, but different, just very different. And and they, I wanted them to be familiar with writing for the human voice. So we had a blues singer come in. We had two opera singers come in and, and talk about, not just <laughs> sing for them, but to, to sing their music. Say, okay, Mrs. So-and-so is coming in next week and uh, write either a melody or four sounds that you want her to make, whatever. Uh, but the kids were having trouble. They were struggling with writing music. Scansion, uh, range, uh, certain syllables. Uh, scansion r- refers to, you know, the, the accent. You, you don't want to have a, you know, I, I, am, I am going outside. I am going outside. I am, you know, we, it, it's, it, you want it to scan the way you would speak unless you wanted to make an exception, which is always, composers are always making exceptions, of course. So we don't force them into anything, but we want them to be aware of a singer of, you know, I I don't want to go further into that. The point is that one kid made a breakthrough. 
she wrote a song that just bang that ah and all the instruction that the kids had was focused on that one or two kids i don't forget who who broke through and understood what it then all of them felt empowered to do it but not in imitation it was amazing nobody plagiarized anybody we've never almost never have had that problem they, they all want to express themselves but then it comes uh becomes the zeitgeist of it uh means that there's a there's a class spirit that can spill over into other classes that kids can actually say oh this is our language and it is a different language not only that but you can tell the difference between a child in korea um, from their piece from a kid from brooklyn or a kid from scandinavia or especially you know a kid from africa oh my god they don't even call their pieces down there we worked in malawi and kenya uh they don't call them pieces or music they call them beats i mean the, the whole concept of music is different in these various places south america oh my god um so th this th this kind of of uh of uh, advance you might say it, it's not even advanced it's familiarity it's filling it's like you know what this whole thing is like um it, it's like it's like standing on the shore of a new continent paul it's like there's the, it, it's not you know like we're going to exploit the indians there or anything like that we're standing on the shore of something that's undiscovered and we're going to and we're going to express ourselves within it, and it takes a while. But that idea of the discovery of a new musical continent, it has, has stayed with me in all the countries I've ever been uh, in. The, the three countries which have, to me, the greatest music education and most innovative music education systems in the world, surprisingly, are South Korea, Venezuela because of El Sistema and Finland because music there is is the national thing it's like the New York Yankees there the symphony orchestra uh, New York Yankees plus your your rock star plus I mean everything you combine and just to go into those countries and actually have them say why didn't we think of this before why didn't we think that a 10 year old couldn't write a piece of of compelling depth that I want to listen to. It's a different language. You have to, you know, you kind of almost have to learn the language of the, of the people of that age writing. I don't want to just say children. It's not a children's, but it is a sort of different language. And once sure, you get used yeah. to it, you hear all kinds of things in it. It reminds me of that, 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 that sort of in gut instinct I had that the stakes are high when you go to an institution like the New York Philharmonic, no emphasis on institution. Mm. Um, but have you seen examples of children who seem to be setting aside, if you will, their, if you will, short attention spans or frivolity or, <laughs> and a gravitas just sort of comes from nowhere or at least comes from the future or comes from an un, 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 inexplicable place. Mm -hmm. What comes to my mind is, um, 
Samuel Barber, for example, mm-hmm. some of his earliest pieces, such as Dover Beach, mm-hmm. There is such deep, deep melancholy. And the kid mm. is, you know, just coming out of his teens. Mm-hmm. And he's already writing some of the most despairing, deep, mm. heavy, sure, lifelong despair music mm-hmm. um, that has such wisdom in it. Mm. Children appear to be able to access that. Where is that coming from? Or, or I put it another way, how do you get that out of them? Is it, <laughs> you... is it real? Okay, yeah, well, of course it's real. And... Um... I could, I'm trying to think of analogies. At a certain age, kids are able to form speech and understand spoken word. That happens, obviously, somewhere between the age of one and two. At another age, they're able to draw and paint, as I say, with depth and profundity. That starts happening at age four, five, six. There is an age at which, because of the sequential quality of music, kids become aware and able to put forth at age 8, 9, 10, 11. Uh, I've worked with kindergartners musically, and they do compose really nifty tunes. But there's, there's, um, there's not, I don't see an evident ability to, to sequence ideas, to come forth with it. I'm not talking about symphonic development as much as I am just mm, filling in the details of a piece of music. I'm always talking about details. I'll draw a circle on the, on, the, on the whiteboard or whatever, and I'll say, what does that circle tell you about my sister? Well, that she has a head. Well, what else is there about her? She's angry. Well, go ahead and draw something that makes angry. It draws an eyebrow. Okay, why is she angry? So another kid comes up and say, and, and uh, draws her mouth down in a frown, uh, she's angry because I stole her toy or something. And in the details that they, that accumulate of that drawing, sometimes we get, we, somebody suddenly decides that a thunderstorm is coming onto her head or that a building is falling on her or that she's helping a, 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 a bird to fly, uh, you know, that has hurt its wing or something, you know, all kinds of emotions. The details of that are there. Now, you say the attention span, and I've found not only <laughs> the attention span, but a kid with ADHD, like I had, or maybe still have, can only concentrate for 30 seconds at the most, and then they're climbing the walls. So one thing that I tell my teaching artists right away, two words to remember, patience and persistence. We learn that as composers. I had to teach myself that as a composer, uh, that I, I had to be patient with my idea. It was impossible. I, I just saw your, a book in your, in your bookcase there. It said, uh, a writer's job is to go to bed angry and to wake up even angrier. Well, I mean, all those... Harlan you, Ellison, yeah. You, you, yeah, and you, you, you have to realize that there is a process. So as a composer, you can't just write, well, maybe Mozart could, I don't know. But most composers, and certainly myself, labor over a piece of many uh, rough drafts and o- over time. We can't expect the child to just, you know. So I'll take a kid for 30 seconds, starts climbing the walls. Okay, and I'll wait. And we'll talk about something else. Okay, what comes next? What comes next? What comes next? Uh, the, uh, the, all these... Uh, 
things gradually coalesce into a uh, into a whole, which despite the child, and sometimes they don't even realize the depth of what they're uh, composing. I mean, I, I you know to veer off from the story, a kid in Finland. How old was she? Nine, ten. She started composing this piece, um, and and a, a, one of the teaching artists over there had to notate it for her, but she sang everything. You know, kids in Finland, they all sing from age three or four. So she's able to sing things. She started with a, uh, a, a beautiful kind of minuet, a waltz, in three. It's beautiful. It got a little, a little more fraught with something, a couple of minor chords. And by the way, we, we show the kids, don't tell me that that's a minor seventh chord. Tell me how it makes you feel. So the kids, by the way, they learn that at age seven or eight. They can't tell you what a major chord is, a tonic dominant thing to, to save their lives, but they hear the difference. So this, this, this girl, uh, it gradually morphed into an A minor horrible marching theme with a tuba. She had to have a tuba blatting at its highest volume and, and strings with down bows, horrible like that. And then it faded into, uh, into something that was totally like in the clouds. It was like a George Crumb kind of atmospheric thing. What was that about? Oh my God. Vivi was her name. You've written the the history of your country. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 waltzing kind of thing that you get in in Scandinavia from from the Swedes who dominated Finland for so many years, and then from the other side the Stalinist march of the soldiers, uh, breaking in on that, and then in the end. What happens after Finnish independence? It goes off into the clouds. The profundity of that piece, just all our mouths dropped open. That's what, that's what prompted the Finns to say, why didn't we think of this before? Mm-hmm. And their, their kids, oh my God, one of their kids wrote a piece about a volcano that would just do, I don't know, you name any of your great composers now. I don't want to start, but a, a, a description, a gutsy description of a volcano in a three-minute orchestra piece that just knocked everybody's socks off. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> I, I, I struggle with a certain paradox because you, I, 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 you make a great case for the fact that what children need is encouragement. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. that's the killer ingredient to, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because earlier you said that they need to feel safe, mm-hmm. and I, I guess I kind of get that. I mean, if if you're a kid. You're surrounded by danger constantly oh, and you're yeah. learning how to be safe and you're learning you find out that you can get hurt by whatever you know tripping mm-hmm. or touching the hot stove or whatever <laughs> so i get that that's an instinct what becomes a paradox to me is the universe of music conservatories that are really the breeding ground for all this great music that we listen to mm-hmm. so on the one hand i'm can you solve this dilemma i have which is that <laughs> I do treasure the fact that we have one last kind of cultural institution where we can go to a concert and hear music performed 
yeah. immaculately to the mm -hmm. most ridiculously high standards mm -hmm. where it's almost like a gladiator sport where you're kind of waiting for somebody to screw up just a tiny bit because then it's really dramatic you know mm -hmm. so there's that atmosphere mm -hmm. and we say how nice in a world of endless mediocrity to have perfection mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. on the flip side mm -hmm. It sounds like the tactics, or at least the environment of a music conservatory, can be very punishing, can mm -hmm. be very not encouraging. Confining. Right? Confining. Yeah. And mm -hmm. yet kids are the ones who need, I mean, mm -hmm. to, to beg the cliche, they need discipline the most. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how do you reconcile those two worlds? What is the way to make, if you will, great music with the high stakes that can fill up an orchestra with sound? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes time, patience funding and it doesn't happen right away but it happens and the vehicle for that being the symphony orchestra or bands and ensembles i mean it doesn't have to be classical by a long shot but the that infrastructure vehicle that you speak of with such uh love and i have i share totally i mean i spent my whole youth uh, learning how to play an instrument classically to the greatest level of perfection that i could manage um, the, let me just put it this way simply when a child like I m mentioned that composition by Vivi now if her grade school orchestra or even the high school orchestra played that piece it would be something and it would be quite amazing but to hear the Helsinki Philharmonic play that piece and put it up at that level that you're talking about, that exquisite level of perfection and beauty, and take it seriously, makes the piece rise to a certain level. I mean, it's like, uh, you can't make an analogy. I mean, I'm trying to, with the visual art, you can take a painting and put it in a horrible light, you know, and you can take a Rembrandt and make it really look horrible if you put it in the wrong light. But if you make a good light without changing a single brush stroke of, of the painting, you can make it look fantastic by the correct lighting. And that's what happens with these kids' music. You make it, you give it the same seriousness. And I must say, all the orchestras that I've worked with, I have yet to find an orchestra that, even though they may react, if, oh, this is just a kid's piece, so we don't need to rehearse it. Uh, 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 excuse me, this is contemporary music. And in some cases, it's much more difficult than your, your run of the whatever, uh, contemporary piece because this is fresh from the mind of a kid who doesn't realize that the first violin section is supposed to be playing in a higher octave than the second violin section they don't know that and yet they know the instrument they love it they hear it played by mr or mrs so-and-so and, -so, and uh, they start writing creatively for it so that gap that you did that paradox can be bridged by taking these kids pieces seriously just as taking my own music or that of Joe Schwantner or, or any of your, uh, or for that matter, John Luther Adams, you mentioned that that stuff has to be performed. Well, if you don't perform it well, it's going to bomb for sure. Like a good Broadway play, you know, it's got to be done well. Yeah. I, the idea of children rising to the occasion mm -hmm. makes perfect sense when you, sort of absorb the reality that there is never a more malleable and never a more the world is your oyster time than when you're a kid you know mm -hmm. my dad's a, a child sociologist or a sociologist oh. who specialized in children's thesis was 
focused on the way that it's kind of game over by the time you're even six months old. <laughs> but in any case, you know, yeah. who you are is so heavily defined. It's logarithmic, isn't it? In terms mm -hmm. of, you know, mathematically, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you will. Mm -hmm. And we just become set in our ways and our methods mm -hmm. and our attitudes. Mm -hmm. um, but when you describe, I love the visual. You talk about this continent mm -hmm. of, 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 of awakening, if you will, mm -hmm. that is available to us if we give children young people set the bar very high and the orchestra sort of epitomizes that doesn't it it's mm -hmm. like one instrument but many instruments mm. but when they know that they have that mm -hmm. don't they rise to the occasion mm -hmm. isn't that presenting them with something that says this will be great because it's already great and here you need to play your part in this great thing mm -hmm. yeah and and as i say it takes beyond the infrastructure of the whole thing it takes time and it takes that that catchy zeitgeist business that the kids not only feel safe and empowered, but they, f they, f they feel that they know how to do it. And it becomes, as you say, malleable. Yeah, a, a kid is, you know, it, it, it's set. You know, you learn your language at such an early age. You say six months. Yeah, that's true. But other things do remain malleable up until God knows when. Maybe you're 85. I don't know. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, that certainly that age, 8, 9, 10, before puberty hits, and if you can grab them there and say, you are an artist, whatever you're going to be in life, you, are, you remain an artist. And I say that to every single one of them. Uh, they they can do that transition into adolescence and teenagehood without mm, losing mm -hmm. that, that uh, God-given artistic uh, ability that they're born with. Yeah, yeah. Well, this all sounds like a lot of philosophizing, but there's also the mechanics of what very young composers process is. So one, one thought that I had, I was just intrigued or, or curious about, your embrace of technology, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, one of the roles that a very young composer's facilitator is do, playing is to notate, to, to convert something into the, if you will, academic mm -hmm. language mm -hmm. yeah. of... Well, that a, that a musician could play. You've yeah. got to distribute scores to a yeah. certain number of, of... So that thing can be... I hate to use this word. It can be mechanized, can't yeah, it? Yeah. And so are we looking so, also at a future where in the same way that like my, my Alexa, I hope it might even ding when I said Alexa to trigger mm -hmm. it, but you yeah. know, it, it does speech transcription, speech mm -hmm. recognition. It understands mm -hmm. what you're yeah. saying. Oh yeah. Is you any can... of this problematic to you that there will be machines that simply hear humming and can, can, can begin to construct compositions for children? Oh, I, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Wow, you bring up a lot of a lot of issues. First of all, yes, we do embrace technology. We have there's no choice because it's here. Um, I do have to. I, I have a problem with some kids, not all kids, who grab the computer or the GarageBand or or you know links and in, in, in programs on the computer, and just start punching buttons randomly, and they wind up with compositions you can tell right away are written. Uh, automatically or written by the computer. Um, 
and and the computers are complex. I'm not trying to say that they're simple. I mean, a, you know, a computer can beat the the world chess master, right? So there's you know there's a lot of thought going in there. But the computer is making the choices, not not the human. And what interests us is not like to say a baseball player uh, can hit a home run uh, if it's 450 feet. That's a big deal. A machine could hit it 10 times as far. So are we going to the ball field to hit to see a, a machine hit a baseball at, you know, when it's th thrown a curveball at 105 miles an hour? We're, we're not paying the, all those, that money for the tickets to see that. We're seeing a human being versus another human being and all that um, human reaction. Um, we're going to an orchestra or to a rock concert because we're seeing a human linking him or herself up with a with a, a musical instrument instruments whether they're electronic or not and Laurie Anderson was one of the first to kind of realize that in a classical way uh, the crossover business of that in uh, retained a human personality there's no I I don't feel threatened by it however a child has to learn to use that with attention what's I'm forgetting the word with with cognition with with, uh, with thinking and to use the technology rather than let the technology use the child because child can complete an assignment you know write write a 10 bar melody yeah you can just press a couple buttons and do that um, but it's not I guarantee you it's not going to be as interesting as if the child uh, did. We, we, <laughs> we, we have the, uh, an exercise that one of my teaching artists said, write the worst melody in the world. And boy, is that a fun exercise because <laughs> kids come with all stupid kinds of melodies and when they're played by good instrumentalists or something or sung together uh, on a high level, they don't sound so bad. The the the, uh, the 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 human quality of of choosing what's what sounds beautiful, ugly, weird, terrible <laughs> uh, is makes it of interest to us. It just yeah. is of interest to us. You you don't have to worry about technology. It's just, but you do have to use it like uh, like getting into like a uh, one kid said. Um, writing for an orchestra was one thing, but then writing on the computer to put my score into in, into uh, Sibelius or, or or you know Finale um, score uh, program. Um, he said that felt like I was sitting in a Lamborghini sports car without knowing how to drive. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that's a profound comment. It's true. Mm. Writing for humans. On, on an instrumental basis was was doable was not uh, that daunting it, it 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 reminds me of when I was a kid um, I, I do feel like for anybody who grew up in the uh, recently <laughs> or even a few a few decades ago the grand opera of our time was movies okay <laughs> and as a filmmaker I'm biased towards that medium as being like the ultimate <laughs> you know combination of every type yeah. of media and sensation and style Absolutely. And, and there it's also to p place it in a specific period you had the rise of symphonic music 
mm-hmm. in film scores that actually sort of didn't exist on the type of scale that it does now, where it's mm-hmm. like every darn movie, even a comedy, might mm-hmm. have a full orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, you have things like space operas, you know, these action mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. So, of course, growing up, you know, Star Wars figures in the dirt, playing in the sand, reenacting scenes from these movies. Mm-hmm. What I remember as a kid was that while I'm, you know, having Luke Skywalker battle with Darth Vader with his lightsabers or something, this is all very embarrassing because, but mm-hmm. I was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. but when I, when that happened, I heard that music, but it wasn't even the themes that were written. It was mm-hmm. my own stuff that I was mm-hmm. just using the orchestral sound palette to mm-hmm. make. And so what I'm getting at is, Sometimes, even in dream sleep, which is not rich for me, it's not like I come up with great things when I'm dreaming. It's usually chaos. Mm -hmm. But I have memories of a few times when I woke up at some point in the middle of sleep and said, I think I just had a completely new, gigantic composition that was happening, you know, Mm. in my synapses somehow. Wow. And if there were a way to quickly and fast sort of transpose to, to notate that, to hmm. preserve what happens in that mm-hmm. playful, you know, um, play acting world as a child. Mm. I just felt like that would have been the coolest thing ever. And, and mm. technology, it's possible that technology can do things like that. The more mm-hmm. we can tap into mm-hmm. the ways our brains fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's so your continent and in another form, I guess is what and I mean. An- another form. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so. I, d- I definitely want to g- at least get to a couple of John Deke specifics, which <laughs> includes, uh, I mean, The Passion of Scrooge, I can't uh, pass it by. But to be honest, I just have to commend people to watch. There's a making of documentary that runs a half hour that uh, I'll link to, but that also is a good place for people to just get acquainted with that piece. But it's definitely one of your, I don't know, there are more than one magnum opus allowed for a composer, <laughs> but it's certainly a, yeah. a, a cherished cherished mm. piece of music and mm. Um, mm. I made an opera film of it which yeah. was a way of yeah. reinventing it in a certain way to put the composer's identity yeah. front mm. and center yeah, but, yeah. Um, I, I guess since we've covered so much ground even in the documentary ultimately I just ask you um, if you reflect back if you, if you position yourself 10 20 years from now you'll still be with us um, mm. Mm. what will you think about that piece fitting into your life mm-hmm well, um, the the piece was a uh, a high point of of both uh, uh, technical, excuse me, attention to the to the technique of composing. You know, the traditional technique, not so much the technological, because it was it was all written for acoustic instruments. Uh, granted, the extended percussive sounds were sort of some of them were kind of new, but basically it was, it's for a traditional chamber s- symphony. Um, the piece was also autobiographical in the sense that it, it reflected to me a crisis of my own life and a, a feeling of redemption. There's a, there's a redemption, a spiritual redemption in that in that fantastic story of Dickens um, that never failed to grab one. Um, although it took me quite a while to realize the depth of that, of that thing, because sometimes it, it happens as you're writing. You, know, you have no idea how good your piece is or how bad it is uh, until it's finished. And, oh, I did that? 
you know, whatever. Um, 10 or 20 years from now, it'll probably be a, a period piece for me, uh, reflecting a certain style. Um, I'm writing another piece, which was intended to sort of be a companion of that, and it's based on a Scandinavian folktale, uh, and, and is, is a sort of holiday piece, along with Scrooge, like uh, uh, the, the Christmas Eve miracles, which are, um, are, are ubiquitous in all cultures, uh, whether they're Christmas or not, certain, certain times when animals can speak or there's a truce between humans and animals. And it, it, that, that's a fascinating concept for me. So, to, to answer your point, uh, we will see the dis, because Scrooge was basically written uh, 20-some years ago, we'll see what Dick comes up with with these two. There, there's another piece that I'm writing for uh, Quartet and Voice. Um, we'll see how that, uh, how, how that compares with those other pieces because 20 years before Scrooge, uh, I wasn't writing pieces that would compare with that at all. It was a, there was definitely a, a a transition, a change there. So you've mentioned biographical, spiritual. Um, yeah, what what role does any religious practice play in your composing life? And I ask that actually not to be <clears throat> too specific, but more so. Um, you know, some composers actually are very deliberate in that. You know, mm. you, they'll write actually in the form of a mass, or they'll, um, or maybe it was just the gig that they had, right? Maybe Bach wasn't necessarily a, a Bible thumper, but he was getting paid weekly to to, <laughs> to write sacred music. Yeah. What? Why don't you write any of that? Is a simple way of simplistic way of putting it. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I guess I hadn't thought along those, those lines. I consider myself a spiritual person. Uh, in fact, I do go to church now, um, amazingly, uh, and kind of ecumenical church that embraces both, well, any of the, uh, as they call it, Abrahamic, Abrahamic religions, you know. Um, but I never wanted to write a canonical piece, like a, like a mass or a cantata even. Uh, based on scripture, uh, it's great literary material, though, isn't it? Oh, wow, yeah, it's, it's both both literary and and musical. Jeez, if you think of all that, and and so much of our of the past music uh, is non, not logical. There was an attempt in the, and here I'm going in dangerous ground. There was an attempt in the toward the beginning up to the middle maybe even later, 20th century, to make music logical. And my, my dear Pierre Boulez, who I admire greatly, and, and we, we had a wonderful relationship, uh, but we differed so much in, in our aesthetic. And I asked him if he expected the public to understand his piece on the logical level of which he conceived it. Didn't matter, almost all of his music. And he said, well, you do not open a book on nuclear physics and expect to understand it right away. And I thought, well, you know, that can be music. Uh, 
And there is a place for that, that logical, scientific thinking. And we are all nowadays a big deal. Do you believe in science? You know, the, you know there's the climate change and all that. Uh, um, or do you, do you think it's all bullshit? You know, it's... It, but musically, a lot happens in the pre-conscious, the, the parts of the brain that don't respond to that. And that's why I think children have access to that part uh, more clearly than adults do, unless the adult remains as a child. What's getting in the way right now, uh, us adults? What's the problem here? Oh, my God. Where to start? <laughs> Well, you mean uh, you mean as a concert goer or no, what? no? What, what's preventing us from being um, composers, for example? Yeah. Cognitive well, dissonance is a yeah. yeah fun well, well, music. Yeah, it, it, it's difficult to politicize music at all because you know, look at all the there there were there's fine music even written or films made you know in in Hitler's Germany, um, but. Uh, what what uh yeah the world needs more artists i mean you know people say oh they can't find uh, uh employment you know what well, well that's not the point of becoming an artist as they say in el sistema which i admire greatly it's not that you're going to all play in a symphony orchestra it's that you give a street child a violin or a clarinet and he becomes a citizen mm. okay mm. i get that Profoundly, and that's that's what that's what we need. We need that that kind of uh, self uh, awareness, self esteem, and I think that will that will guide us into the future. Um, we, because when a person becomes aware of themselves enough and feel confident enough, that's when they become caring. Okay, and, and the world definitely needs more caring. Uh, that's what's going to get us through all these crises of, of war, politics, and especially the climate crisis. You've got to care. For whom? For your grandchildren. Hello? That's, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm out of here in, in whatever X number of years, but the kids I work with are going to be alive at the end of this century. I have to care about them in order to... Uh, you know, to do something intelligent. And and in order to care about them, I have to feel a certain center in myself. I don't know how to put it. Well, to wrap up, I mean, as to you and what you are and what you do, you're a mountain climber. This is an interesting factoid. So this is a somewhat, if uh, spiritual is not a, maybe is a, is a trivial way of describing it, but you center yourself basically by that sort of activity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and also about you, I mean, I'm curious, actually the first episode of this series um, was with Darren Hagen, who was somebody who had just written a memoir where he was confronting um, his struggles with things in his past, like addiction, mm -hmm. of of certain sorts. Um, mm. So, is and, and what I'm getting at is, what is the material of a composer? Is there mm -hmm. a common strand between mm. composers that make them um, go between bright and dark places and s constantly searching, climbing mm. mountains, um, <laughs> struggling with addiction, if you will? I mean, yeah. does that and does that overlap with your experience as a composer? Well, it certainly overlaps with mine. I learned so much about composing by by uh, going out into the wilderness, particularly 
and not so much by conquering mountains, but by the the patience and persistence of which I spoke earlier. Um, I, I learned all that there. But how many composers? There were some composers, conductors and so on, who were mountain climbers. Furtwangler was a great, you know, he was a mountaineer. Even Richard Strauss, I think, was a mountaineer. Uh, they don't. You don't have to do that, and you don't have to be a recovered alcoholic or addict. Um, all of that can go into your music. What it takes to be a composer, and I think what we all share, is a is a willingness to take the time to to delve in deeply into yourself and and speak to people in a way that speaks from your depth and find a way of communicating, uh, which is, in this case, through music. You could also do it with painting, poetry, dance, and the whole drama and, and film, the whole nine yards. Uh, music has, a, has its own special territory, doesn't it? And uh, I think that the preparation for becoming a composer has gotten a little bit... I hate to use the word elitist, but you know what I mean? It's a, it should not be something that... One of my best... I get off on this, but one of my best teaching artists in Venezuela, he said, I want... I like your program. I want all the, all the kids to understand it, and it's not going to threaten the established professional academic composer at all. It's going to exalt them. I said, how? He said, well, look, take... I think it was, he had two examples. One was he said, take somebody who specializes in the Renaissance uh, harpsichord or theorbo or something like that. If he's a great virtuoso on that, kind of who cares because nobody knows how to play that. But you take Yasha Heifetz, who became great on the violin, and then millions of kids played the violin. It exalted him. It wasn't that Heifetz had competition but the kids understood what it took to be a violinist. It's just so with very young composers because the the so-called great, the you know, glitterati of composers, these kids will understand what a, a really good composition entails. They will they will exalt composers. It will be a, a, a skill and a, and a calling that they know something about. They're not going to ignore it. All the millions of kids that play baseball, not very few of them are going to break the major leagues, if any. But the fact that they know how to hit a ball and how to, how to, how to uh, make a double play or, or a throw to first or something makes them uh, great fans of the professionals. So they, it's not that the, you know, they have competition. Can, can I ask you, though, to indulge... Indulge. indulge as the ghost of Christmas future. And, you know, while, while, while bookmarking this and then saying that we want to end on a positive note, <laughs> indulge in a little bit of cautionary tale about mm -hmm. is there something about the, the overall trajectory, non-specifically, about the composers you're seeing emerge today getting programmed by this great, the greatest of all palettes, the orchestra, right? Mm-hmm. That is concerning, if you will. And I'll add to that point. I mean, mm. the, this Capricorn conversation idea is, to be honest, a little bit over nostalgic. The mm. risk is that I continue to propagate 
what I believe actually. Yeah, but there was we this, all do. Yeah. Well, no, I, as for me, there was this precious moment mid-century, okay, mid-20th century, mm-hmm. when it seems to me that the greatest composers were thriving. And this is, mm-hmm. you know, this is the tail end of your time. I hear you, yeah. You know, Leonard Bernstein, the era of those composers uh, yeah, that Copeland we call Barber, them, yeah, yeah. And we call them American, whatever American yeah, means. Yeah, yeah. We don't seem to have that dynamic, truly um, overall quality of, of both tonally, tonal, lyrical, modernist music that continued to revere and draw from the so-called established classical traditions. Mm-hmm. Sure, there are composers continuing that lineage, but more scarce. Where is this going? Wow. Well, that, that mid-century more, I hate to use the word populist, but, but oriented, that, that Copeland's Appalachian Spring, let's say, mm-hmm. or any work by Barber, geez, just the School for Scandal Overture, I mean, gee, that kind of beauty that, that spoke to people, or even Copeland's Third Symphony, is, is, you know, as involved as that was, spoke to people in the World War II era. That, um, that was looked down upon and I, I don't even want to get into this. It it sort of became déclassé and and uh, not intellectual enough. Let's not even get into sure, that because there's a, huge... a lot of lot of great compositions that that used uh, you know uh, dodecaphonic uh, or th- serial techniques. Sure, it's, it's not sure. To... Barber's piano sonata oh has the last God. movement with serial techniques yeah, and so on. I mean, yeah. there's, sure, there's, the, the the style is not is not the point. But I do think that for one reason or another, part of which may include that what we just said, that the symphony orchestra needs a shot of adrenaline. Okay, let's just put it that way. There's no, it's not going to die out, but it needs a shot of adrenaline. I think that a way to, to, uh, to provide that shot is, is to, I hate to say democratize, you know, make composition more of something that a kid does like like joining the basketball team or or the ballet class which is a common thing uh uh for kids to do that music composition if that becomes a more general thing then you will see an art form rise i can't i'm certainly i if i would dictate what that form would be. I would form a school of composition. I don't want to do that. I don't teach kids how to compose. They have to teach us. So you will see that. And I, 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 I do feel optimistic about that. I'm not. I don't know if I'm as optimistic about the ability of adults politically to handle the problems of the world. But, but this I think could help. So to end on a on a high note, absolutely. I think if we just Listen, not just the children, but just listen to more voices that are coming up in America, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, um, that, that, the, that live music will inform us in some way that I can never predict. And it will, it will help us and make us feel more human. John, my first memory of meeting you and seeing you was that behavior you mentioned of hovering around a performance or a rehearsal 
and moving around, um, <laughs> feeling irresistibly moved physically by what you hear. But what that also gave me a picture of was somebody who was always absorbing the whole room mm -hmm. and, and what the music was doing, what the music was mm -hmm. doing, not mm -hmm. what it said, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. the message that it had, mm -hmm. and not how perfectly it was done, but what it was physically doing. Mm -hmm. And this mid-century nostalgia includes, yes, it was a period when the audience mattered more. Mm -hmm. the, the audience matters. You know, children there you matter. Go. And, and, and it's interesting, you made the earlier point about how people need to be encouraged. Well, audiences need to be encouraged, right? <laughs> or, else, or else they won't come back. Yeah, yeah. And I just love your spirit because you, mm. you do, if you are that person hovering around, Mm -hmm. engaged with everything that's going on mm -hmm. the audience really matters yeah yeah there's the whole the whole point of it really in a sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah john thank you so much for having this conversation well it's my pleasure my pleasure paul i loved uh, always talking to you thank you <laughs>